Hi, welcome to the Happiness Hive podcast. I'm Catherine Bowyer and I am completely fascinated by people and what motivates them. I've spent the past three and a half decades specialising in mindset and human behaviour and I've helped thousands of people to create happy and amazing lives. And now I am super excited to be chatting with women from around the world who I have secret and to be honest, not so secret crushes on. They're women who inspire me. I'm intrigued as to how they do life and what makes them tick. I want to find out their magic formula that makes them who they are. And at the end of the episode, I'd love for you to say, I'd like a little bit of what she's having. The conversations are real and raw. They're full of passion, inspiration and lots of fun. And nothing is off limits. So grab yourself a cuppa or pop on your trackie and go for a walk and join us for today's chat. There may just be that pearl of wisdom you need to hear. So let's shimmy on over and get started. Today is absolutely going to be such a beautiful chat with my new friend, Arlene Steputat. I met Arlene only just recently through um, my spiritual psychology program, and we were in one of the practice groups together, and I instantly knew that I wanted Arlene as a guest on my podcast because she has such a interesting story and life and I just want to find out all about that. So welcome Arlene to the Happiness Hive podcast. How are you? I'm good and I'm uh, for me just for your viewers being in America it's still Sunday. Yes. (laughs) You know uh, that that whole time thing is is always interesting. Yes we're a day ahead. We're a day ahead. We're coming to you from the future. We're coming to you from the future. Yeah whereabouts are you in America? I live in Santa Barbara, California, which is about 90 miles north of Los Angeles. It's often called uh, the American Riviera because it's a Mediterranean climate and it's kind of ocean and mountains and kind of the rich and famous. There was a soap opera years ago about Santa Barbara and right next door, the very next town over, just like 10 miles away, is Oprah Winfrey lives there, and she Ooh. enticed Megan and Prince Harry to live here. And my invitation for high tea has gotten lost in the mail. Oh, so I was going to ask if you. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know what's happened. I have to check with the post to see why I haven't been invited. Why you yet. haven't been invited. Do you bump into them? Do you see them around? Do you see Oprah I around? I have not, but they have been sighted around town. And actually, there is a polo club. One other city down, not too far away. It's, you know, little villages kind of nestled together. And, and actually Harry had played polo here before. And of course, you know, Megan being from Hollywood, I'm sure she had been to Santa Barbara because yeah. we're only 90 miles away. It's a two hour drive. They're commuting. So commuting distance. They could commute yeah. to Los yeah. Angeles. Many people do commute. We have lots of Hollywood people here in this, you know, area. So it's oh. kind of fun. That's fun. That's fun. Yeah. Yeah. Have you always lived in Santa Barbara? I have not. I grew up on the other coast of America, on the East Coast, and was born in a little state, you know, we have 50, a little state called New Jersey, which was right next to New York State and right next to New York City. I grew up about 15 miles from New York City in a very small town. But my mom had uh, been raised in New York City. So I actually grew up going into Manhattan from the time I was a, a young girl. So I actually saw my first Broadway show when I was six. 
Oh my gosh, that is just such a bucket list for me that we, we, I've been to America to the West Coast and I've been to Hawaii, but the East Coast is definitely a bucket list for me and Broadway. Oh my goodness. First one at six. Actually, I think my first, mine's certainly not Broadway in Australia, but what was the first show that you saw? Do you remember? It's a show people wouldn't know is called Destry Rides Again. But during high school, because we were so close, we would have field trips where in the morning they would take us to the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And then on a Wednesday afternoon, we'd see a matinee. So I saw, you know, Man of La Mancha and Les Miserables and just all the Broadway shows. And it was a school day. Wow. Oh, my gosh. So jealous. My my first one was was a great life. Yeah. My first one was Jesus Christ Superstar. Uh Uh-huh. I I love that one, too. Yeah, yeah, I love that. So what did you do growing up there? What was growing up like, like for you? Well, I'm an only child. My parents uh, were married 11 years before my mom got pregnant, just because they couldn't. Yeah. And so I was, I came in as a very loved child, a wanted child, yes. and had a charmed childhood, I would say, in a small village, you know, small town. And then my dad died when I was quite young. Yeah. So he died very suddenly. And I know from from you that yes. you've had yes. loss early. Yes. And so that changes everything. Yeah, it sure does. Um, and for any of your other listeners, you know, having a death of a parent. How old were you? I was 11 years old. Mm. My dad died four days before my 12th birthday oh. and 20 days before Christmas. Oh, bloody hell. Mine was, my mum died the day before my 12th birthday. So we're the members of that same club. Yeah. And while I think I'm probably older than you, what's true is that people had no idea how to deal with children in grief. And so because it was the holidays, because it was my birthday, people just gave me gifts. And my mother was in shock. It was quite a sudden death. Her mother lived with us, my grandmother. So anyway, what I will say is that I grew up very quickly. I started working when I was 12. And at the same time, particularly in high school, I also wanted to do everything. So I was like in the high school band and in the drama club. And I worked 20 hours a week. And I was a straight A student. And I took care of my grandmother. You know, I did all of those things. Because I wanted to, I wanted to have a, a teenage life, and I had these adult responsibilities. Yes. So yeah, I did. I, that's interesting. Wanting to do it all and being a straight A student. I was reading something the other day, Arlene, that because I wasn't a straight A student. I I, I was up until when Mum passed away, and then I was reading something the other day that was saying that grief and the the trauma of losing someone is the equivalent and please don't quote me on this but like having a brain injury for some people and that that grieving brain affects us physiologically and looking back on that I can see that's absolutely what happened for me it's almost like it's not that I couldn't read but it was just a real struggle to um, to study so it sounds like your journey was you know, being a straight A student, doing lots, wanting to be involved. I wanted to be a good girl and make life easy for my mother. Yes. So I did everything I could to not get in the way, to yes. not 
cause any trouble to she had enough to deal with. Yes, and so yeah. uh, and also, you know, in high school, I wanted to go to college and I knew we didn't have money. Yes. So then it was like, well, if I get good grades, maybe I can get a scholarship. So yeah. it, I was very driven. To, yeah, that's cool. To be good. Yeah. Yeah. And did you go to college? What did you study in college? I did. And and that's an interesting thing, too. I, I went to a college that was local because I didn't realize my mother was going to get remarried. And as an only child, I was really her caregiver, too, if she got sick. Anyway, so what I studied was, again, my age at the time, women were primarily geared towards school teacher, yes. secretary, yes. or nurse. <laughs> Yes. So nursing was not for me. No. My mother's older sister had been a very successful uh, executive secretary and it ended up marrying the bank president. And she saw no reason why I should want to go to college. Oh, so she yes. was very strongly against it. But to my mother's credit, she wanted me to get an education. And so I became a teacher and I studied teaching and English as my primary area with drama. As a secondary thing. And then remedial reading was just coming into its own where people understood. So I took that as a teaching credential as well. And I was able to get a teaching job as a remedial reading teacher when I first started. And did you stay teacher for was that your career as a teacher? Did you? Well, yes and no. My first year. So when I was doing a practicum. As a, as a student, I was in an alternative high school where it was a much freer kind yes. of environment. And I really liked that. Then I got my first teaching job and it was very strict and I was very naive. I didn't know how to play politics. I was hired for maternity. It was a whole bunch yeah. of things. Yeah. So I had a bad experience after that first year and I decided I wouldn't go back to public schools, you know, the state run yeah, sure. schools. Yeah. I ended up working, I had in college worked on a hotline. I've always been interested in psychology. And so through my career, I, I worked as a teacher in a facility for people who had psychiatric uh, illnesses, but were out released from facilities and, and, and home. So I, t- I taught there. And then I ended up teaching in an alternative high school in uh, inner city, Newark, New Jersey, where kids had flunked out of the private of the public school system, maybe were in trouble with the law, maybe had gotten pregnant, you know, whatever, and and chose to go to this school, which was called Independence High School. And so I taught there for a number of years. And then I went on, I got more interested in people's lives. Yes. So I went on to work with underserved youth in lots of ways. So I ran group homes and all that. So, but I, my master's is in community education and family education. And I would say I still do that. Oh, yes. Do you know, there's so many parallels to what you're talking about. Like it's not exactly my journey, but the, there are certainly parallels there as well. I studied adult and community education that I never thought I would, that was something that just came about when I started working, a job opportunity opened up. My husband worked, he's a teacher, he's a industrial arts, so does woodwork and metalwork and design. But there was a period of time that he worked in a, a school for underprivileged kids and he set, helped set up their young mums program. So for girls that had babies young, he helped to set up that program 
as well and working with some of the underprivileged kids. So it's, yeah, lovely. He's working with kids with disabilities at the moment, which is just beautiful to see. But I want to say something, uh, if I may. Yes, please. When I was 10, there was To Serve With Love Was Out, if people haven't seen that with Sydney Poitier. And there was another book out called Up the Down Staircase about inner cities. And when I was 10 years old, and of course, there were rioting riots in the United States. And I wasn't, I was, for one of those riots, my home was three miles away. Uh, Even though my community was not integrated, it was very close. Anyway, all that to say that when I was 10, I got a very clear message that I was supposed to teach in inner city. I was 10 years old. And I said, someday I'm going to do that. And I did. Wow. How did that play out for you? So when you were 10, you had this message. Did you just, was that in the back of your mind that, or did you, or was it in the front of your mind? Well, I think, I think it was kind of in the back, but I knew that the first step to teach anywhere was to become a teacher. So that's what I pursued. So when my aunt was saying, no, you should be a secretary. I'm like, no, I'm going to be a teacher. So that was step one. And then, you know, things just evolved as they should. You know, if I had stayed in the public school that I was in, that never would have happened. That was more of a middle class community. So I've really come to understand that everything works in a purpose and that I just have to trust the timing of stuff. And so, yeah, so I taught inner city for four or five years easily. Yeah. And it is, isn't it, Arlene, about being open to opportunities? For me, it's a balance of creating opportunities, but also being open to opportunities that come forward for us as well. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and I, I have to say I had another interesting opportunity. So the summer before I was going to college, I was at the beach and I met a girl who was a cheerleader in high school and was a couple years ahead of me. And she said, oh, what are you going to study? And she was at the same university. And I told her I'm going to do English. And she said, well, listen, as an English major, all the teachers teach mythology and literature. You have to take it. But there's only one teacher you should take it with. And that's Dr. Barrett. Like, don't take it from anybody else. And she said, you're going to work as hard as you can, but she will change your life. And I heard her and I took that class and she was right because that woman taught mythology as the evolution of human consciousness. And so I got exposed to things I had never heard of in my life at 19. Wow. Isn't that good that that person came into your life to let you know that message? Well, she was a messenger. Yeah. And, you, you know, I mean, this was we, we met at a beach far from both of our homes. We were probably... Yeah. 50 miles away. So yeah, but I listened. And I think that's the other thing. Yes. Sometimes you get the messages, but you have to listen. Yes. Yeah. So how did that change your life then the things that you're exposed to at 19? Well, it really, you know, I have to say, when you ask me how I was raised, my parents were both faith filled people. Yes. My mother had been raised Catholic, did not work for her. My father had been raised Lutheran at the time they got married, you know, they couldn't get married in the Catholic, I mean, it was all these roles. And so they decided when I was born to raise me in a different church that neither one of them had been involved in. 
which was a Methodist church. And it was a very loving experience. And I went to Sunday school and I learned all these different things. And I would say by the time I was 17, and I used to sing in the choir, which was the only way I really felt the connection was through the music. But I heard these people who had great faith and I wanted it, but I didn't know how to get it. Yeah. And I wasn't getting it in the church yes. except yes. when I sang, which is why I sang for all those years. So in answer to your question, that class did change my life because she opened up a whole world of thoughts and, you know, Jungian archetypes yes. and, and mythology and understanding all of that. And we read Hero with a Thousand Faces before Bill Moyers was a name, you know. And so what it did was uh, it just kind of woke me up like, oh, my gosh, there's so much more. Yeah. And so I kind of followed wherever she guided me as a, a spiritual director, yeah. you know. Yeah. So she I remember Pierre Vallot, who was the head of the Sufi movement, did a huge thing in New York City at the Cathedral of St. John the Divine. Well, I was. 15 miles away, I could go to something like that and see whirling dervish and, you know, just kind of you're 19 years old. And it's wow. like, oh, my gosh. So it changed everything yeah. in a very yeah. good way. Yeah. For me, a similar journey was through my studies, studying psychology that I got, you know, exposed to a whole lot of just things that I would not ordinarily have been exposed to. So let's fast forward some years. So so growing up, what what are you doing now? So tell us about the end of life. I know we're kind of doing a very, you yeah. know, we're cutting out a whole lot of chunk, but I would love it for our viewers because what is the, an end of life doula, Arlene? So, you know, the truth is, and I, at the risk of sounding somewhat sexist, but women have always been the ones to take care of the sick and the dying mm-hmm. as well as welcome in the children. It's just yeah. always been our domain. And I would say, Maybe 30 years ago, women were changing the way birth was done. And so midwives and birthing doulas came to the fore. And so an end of life doula, there's many similarities between the coming into life and leaving life in a reverse process. It's unpredictable. You need a lot of nurturing, all that stuff. And so an end of life doula is a non-medical person. So we don't do anything medical that helps prepare the person and their family for the process. And it can start with a perfectly healthy person that hasn't, for instance, done in America, we call it an advanced healthcare directive. Like, do you want to be resuscitated? That kind of thing. I think ours is the same. I think ours is. Yeah. Yeah. So it's having that conversation. Well, do you want to be cremated? Do you want to die? And I'm a big advocate of if you're over 18, you need to start thinking about those things because it's not just people, older people that die, it's everybody. And it's also part of it is putting death back in its rightful place as a cycle of life. Yeah. You know, it's been so medicalized in our country and probably yours as well. Yes. Yes. You know, where death is the enemy. So doulas help people befriend death. And then as people get into the dying process, we, do all kinds of things to support the family and the person. And it can be everything from sitting vigil in their dying days. I'm working with a family right now where I'm supporting the wife, her husband's dying of brain cancer, but I'm also helping her put together his ceremony 
and oh, what lovely. she wants and working with what he wants and just and listening to her about yeah. her life. And, you know, so it's a beautiful opportunity. And then on the other side, when someone actually passes, we can do ritual, help people do ritual washing of the body or blessing the body. And then we can, you know, do ceremony there, too. So it's yeah. a beautiful opportunity and some people do it as a profession and I am lucky enough I've been in death and dying field for a very long time I work with five other women and in our community we are able to offer it as a loving service yeah that's beautiful when we talked about that that's absolutely beautiful so a loving service means that people don't need to pay for that service that right. you're able to offer that for them. Right. Um, so is that part of a community that you, is it an organized community that does that or? Well, it's a, we, I organize it with my six women. I, I yeah. started the doula and I, I do want to say to your, to your um, listeners yeah. too that there are uh, end of life doulas who get paid and should yes. get paid. Yes. I'm yes. just like, it is a profession and there's lots of ways doulas are integrated working in hospitals and hospices. In our community, this is, we're a small community and that's how we're doing it here. Yes. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yes. I'm, I'm aware that there are people that do, that, that, that is a profession, like it is a, a business for and people. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And it's becoming more and more of an awareness as we are growing and changing yes. our attitudes about death and dying. And I have to say that COVID put death in our face in a way that nothing else had. So doulas help pick up a lot of the gap of the trauma of what happened to people yes and I I remember when we were chatting Arlene so your people can find you at dying in grace it's dyinggrace.com yeah and there is actually a tab about end-of-life doulas that would explain more in depth the different roles that doulas yes yes so so dying in grace and when I first met Arlene she said I don't know if you recall this, but it's also dying in grace is about living in grace. It's a part of yes. the cycle and it's about helping people to, you know, navigate that, that journey. And like you said, then it's not just about the people who are dying or at end of life, but it's supporting their families as well. And I think from my, my, my dad passed away last year. And that my two brothers and I, it was a, it was a tough process. You know, he was unwell for quite some time. He had moved into a nursing home and then the final stages were very sudden, like they were, you know, a week and it was that whole vigil and we sort of navigated that, but it would have been nice to have a, somebody to lead us through, you know, but dad did have his advanced care plan in place, which made it so much easier for us that we just enacted what he his wishes were so that made it it made it so much easier for us yeah sorry that's just and I'm sorry for your loss because losing the second parent is tough yes it is tough losing a second parent it is because there's no buffer anymore it's you my mother died when I was 38, so I was kind of an orphan in the world, and I wasn't married or anything. I had no brothers and sisters. I mean, it was quite an interesting experience, and but it was all part of the preparation so I could do what I do now. You mentioned before, Arlene, that you have spent a lot of time around death and dying. Tell me more about that. So how did you get into being an end-of-life doula? 
Well, it, it was an evolutionary process. So like you, my first experience of death came very suddenly when I was young. Then when I was 19, I went to uh, the UK as an exchange student for a semester, which was uh, idyllic in my, in my experience and had a wonderful time. And one of my uh, mates, British friends, new girlfriend, really tight, was unfortunately murdered. Like right the last week I was in school oh, and it no. became national, national news oh. in England. And I was 3000 miles away, well, 6000 miles away from everyone. And so having violence touch my life, that was something and then not wanting to tell my family. So I had all yeah. that to deal with. And then, you know, as life went on, I had a period where I lost almost everyone in a very short time. And I also worked in New York City during the AIDS crisis. Yes. And I helped start a program for babies who were dying of AIDS. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah, because they were border babies. No one wanted to. They lived in hospitals. People were afraid to touch them and change their diapers. And and we just realized they needed to be loved before they died. So all this experience of death coming to me in in rapid succession and everything, a suicide, a car crash, just a bunch of different things. I kind of said, I need to start to befriend this. It's not going away. It's part of life. And so I started to first work with my own grief from way back. And, And the University of Santa Monica really helped me deal with it on levels that I didn't even know were inside of me. So then, uh, so I was in education until I came to California. And then I started volunteering with a local hospice. And I think you would resonate with this. I heard on the radio, a new program a hospice was doing, and it was called, I have a friend. And they were recruiting mentors. And the mentors were for children who had lost a parent, but you could only be a mentor if you lost a parent lost when a you parent. were a child. Yes. And as soon as I heard that, I thought to myself, I must do this. I could have so used that. So that got me in the hospice world. And I've been involved with it ever since. I worked for the Alzheimer's Association for a while. That also is a one-way journey. So when doulas became more of a thing in hospices, I started to pursue it and had a friend who ended up saying, well, I'll give you a free training. I, I trained for this international group of, of doulas. You're perfect. Why don't you just go through the training? And that that's it. Wow. Well, do you know what? To me, that sounds like that's your path and that you'd sort of listened, like you were saying before, the opportunities you'd listened. But following, would it be a calling, Arlene? Is it a calling? Oh, a doing end of life is definitely a calling. And and if you talk to folks that work in hospice or oncology or yes, something, yes, they say I I didn't choose it; it chooses you. Yes, yes. You know, because it it takes. Well, first off, it, you know, and some of your listeners may already be cringing because just even talking about death is not a polite conversation. No, no you know. So, no. so to work in it. It's really such a privilege. It is such a great honor to be at this. And the Celtics say where the veil is thin, you know, so it's this like the the worlds are very 
spirit's very present. When babies come in, it's yes. very magical. And if you've ever been, when people are taking their last breath, there's a, there's a, a gift in that if yes. you can see it, you know, so. Actually, yeah, it's definitely cool. When you, when you say that my dad volunteered with palliative care. So he mm-hmm. had done some, some training, which sounds similar to what you're probably not as much as what you've done, but he would visit people in hospitals and just volunteer and just be there and sit with them and talk with them. I don't think. And people need that. They need that. And a lot of times because there's such an adverse reaction to sickness and death and people say, I don't know what to say that they don't go. Yes. And and it's when people really need to be heard the most. What would your advice be for people who do have loved ones who are nearing, you know, at the end of life in, in the final stages, what would be some tips for them to navigate that food because for some people it is very confronting and do you have any pearls of wisdom well um, listen like you said just be there yeah, and listen. Uh, well what yeah. is if you're a caregiver yes. for someone to be sure that you also take care of yourself yes. that you allow yourself yes. to have some respite that you're also gentle with yourself that you find moments of joy um, working yourself to exhaustion erodes the relationship yeah. yes so there's that to realize that to get to the loving that you share with that person. And if the person is passing and you don't have loving with them, it's a great opportunity to just forgive it anyway. Yes. To understand that they did whatever they did doing the best they could. It's a, it's a beautiful time to celebrate and remember and laugh. I mean, you, you know, one of the things we do as doulas is help people set up their vigils. Like, how would you like the room to be, yeah. you know? No. And I have a friend who's a doula and she said, I want a chocolate fondue. I want a bottle <laughs> of whiskey and I want yeah. people coming in and telling jokes. You know, it. I'm happy. I'm glad yeah. I'm, get, you know, yeah. so, but I, I would also say get support. If you're, if someone you love is, is dying Please speak to other people. There's bereavement counselors, like get support for yourself and cherish this time and don't get caught in the small stuff. I would, I was talking to a girlfriend just yesterday about, about that getting caught in the small stuff. You know, there's bigger things at play there. Well, and the thing is that there's a term that we have learned, you and I, in our in our course of study, uh, and I love it. And I said, and that's allowing the person who's dying the dignity of their process. Absolutely. Their process. Absolutely. It's their dying. It doesn't have to look the way I think it should. And especially as a doula, I don't know how it's supposed to go. Yeah. I don't know what the family's supposed to do. Yeah. I, I have to just surrender to be used and support yeah and I think it's also useful and this is what you're you're talking about that you do in your your practice but for people to think about those things in advance because it's very stressful to have those conversations in the present you know when people are near the end of life Can, can I ask you Arlene how early do doulas get involved in that end of life is it is it is it when people have got weeks to live or days or years? Like what's the, I know there's no normal around that, but how does that work? 
So when do I get, when do yeah, when did the dually get involved? Yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting. I, I think we get involved. Most of the cases that I have gotten involved with either have come by referral from a hospice yeah. or a referral from someone who knows of my work and talks to a family and said, Hey, we know this, these people that could come yeah. help. So it's usually at least when there is a serious illness or perhaps a diagnosis. Yeah, sure. uh, but it, it, it often is as it's taking its course. So I often get involved when people are already enrolled in hospice. Yes, yes. And in America, you're eligible for hospice when it looks like you might have six months or less to yes, live. Sure. Yeah. So that gives you a time frame. That being said, you know, people live beyond that. You know, yes. they were yes. longer than that. But and it depends. Uh, I've worked with a family. I did a lot of work with a woman whose whose husband was much older than she is. So he's like 95 and she's 70 or something. Yeah. But they got everything in place. He's still chugging along and she'll call me when something changes. Yeah, nice. Right. Yeah. Now. So it was just the pre- preparing yes. and the conversation. So it really is yes. case by case. Yeah, that's cool. That's really good. That's really good to know. And we do have end-of-life doulas in Australia. We certainly have birthing doulas. Um, we do have end-of-life, and they're varying. Uh, I think the ones that I'm familiar with, it is a paid service. But um, yeah, it's possible. And it should be. Not, I mean, yeah, I'm just lucky yeah. enough to not have to do that. Yeah, but. that's lovely. So that sounds like it's a calling for you. What are some things that fill your cup? And that's probably part of what fills your cup is that, that the honor of being with people, at the end of life. But what are some other things in your life that, that kind of spark joy for you? Well, I have to say that from the time I was a, a little girl, being of service to others has always been a linchpin in my life to the point where I actually ran volunteer programs for other people to help them be of service. Yes. So that brings a great amount of joy to me being of service in, in ways that are meaningful to me. Animals have always brought me great joy. We I've always had animals. We have two dogs and a cat right now, but we have a little menagerie. We, we feed, we feed the wild critters outside so we see bunnies and skunks and raccoon you know so there's that I recently went to a donkey sanctuary where they were saving donkeys so anything with animals brings me great joy nature brings me great joy Santa Barbara is a gorgeous place and so the beauty of the ocean and the mountains and the plants and sunsets that kind of stuff I am blessed to have an amazing marriage yeah. And I have grandchildren and uh, um, my husband had sons. So I'm a mother, laborless grandma, which I highly recommend. I didn't have to birth anybody, but I still get to be a grandmother. That's nice. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It just kind of worked out that way. So, you know, my friends bring me joy. Just watching people grow. You know, yes. we met because of our studies, yes. but. But what, being in a place where I watch people go from this to this, yeah. that is just magic. That's magic. Watch, I love, yes, I love it's that. It's just, it, I can't get enough of it. I, I And I've been doing that for 26 years or something. Yeah. So, And that's a, yes. And, we, you know, when you started out and talking about the, the teaching and from a 10-year-old, you knew that you were going to be 
teaching in a certain area. So that t- teaching is about helping people to develop and grow and just to, to be their best. That certainly is sparks my joy as well. Do you have daily practices that you? I do. Um, yeah. What are, I do you have like a lot of daily from? practices. Well, one is spending quiet time every day, just internal. I, I'm in um, a, a church that uh, call, calls it spiritual exercises. So it's like an yes. internal chanting. So spending time with that, spending time reading sacred literature and also uh, praying for people. We do a thing called calling in the light. So sending good intentions and there's a, a lot of things that are sort of in, so integrated into my life at yes. this point that they're just second nature. And then in our school, there are also other practices that we've learned that help us. So uh, when I go to bed, I say a prayer of gratitude. I do a gratitude journal. And then I set a bedtime intention for more guidance. So yes. what am I supposed yes. to do? When I wake up, it's my first prayer is, you know, use me. Here I am. Thank you. What do you want me to do today? So kind of. Yeah, that's lovely. The bookends, you know. Yes. Yes. My my practice, similar in in the morning. I have sort of setting intentions and and gratitude. And then the end of the day is um, reflecting on the day and what I've been grateful for and then what what I would like assistance with for the, the following days as well. Yeah. And, and one practice that I think is key and it's, it's probably a harder one is when I find myself in upset, yes. you know, in the course yeah. of the day, when something yes. doesn't work out the way I think it should is taking the time to see what that experience has to teach me Yes, and to heal from the part of me that's judging that it didn't go the way I thought it should, yes. or you didn't do what I thought you should do to see what I can glean and heal inside of me. And so that's a practice that I apply when it shows up. Yeah. I, yes. I was just thinking about that as you were saying it for me. Yes. It's when it shows up, it's like, Oh, what's going on here? Why, why am I yeah. reacting when I'm the out way of that I'm reacting when I'm out of sorts? What's that bringing up for me? Yeah. Where's that coming from? Is it, you know, an old story, an old pattern, or is it actually something that still needs some attention and healing? But the first place I go to is, that's interesting. Why is that doing that? Why, why am I reacting that way? And sometimes that's all I need to do. Sometimes yeah. I just go, I just get the insight going, oh, okay. Other times it's just like, why am I responding that right. way? Like that person, you know, something, this situation, I feel really triggered by that. And what I've changed, Arlene, is I've stopped saying the situation has triggered me or the person has triggered me to I have been triggered by that situation or I have been triggered by the person. So I'm taking ownership because it's not about you. It's not about the person that whatever they've done. It's about oh, how am I responding to that? Why am I being triggered the way that I'm being triggered? So that's a change in my, just how I approach those situations. But that's a big change. I mean, it sounds like it's, you know, that's a huge shift because it's, like you said, it's taking responsibility. And those practices that we're both talking about, you know, they are not, easy ones to cultivate, no, no. you know, and, and so lots of people do morning prayer and evening yeah. prayer, but there's like, 
it's kind of what you do in the middle there in the yes. course of your day that is yeah. so I, I would say you know the practice that I work with daily is to just be consciously loving yes 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 loving towards yourself loving towards others and not yep. just other people but you, you've talked about other you know animals in the nature as well it's just well it's just kind of accepting accepting what is I'm not happy that it's 110 degrees right now but that's being upset about it being hot is not going to change it so I might as well just cooperate with it actually Arlene was yes Arlene was saying at the beginning of the chat so it's 110 Fahrenheit for those here in Australia that's about 43 44 degrees so that's hot and it's you normally don't get those hot oh, days. Oh, it's record breaking here. Yes, it's crazy. Yeah. We could go down a whole different Nope. <laughs> but we won't. <laughs> we won't do yeah, that. Not not this talk. Uh, no. Arlene, what's next for you? What's next? Well, you know, one of the things that I have this practice of doing is following guidance and not knowing why. <laughs> so I got very strong guidance to take a course in the local community college in journalism. So I have enrolled and I have had my third class in journal. I've taken three classes in journalism. So I am not quite sure why I'm taking this class. I'm not sure if it's to be on the campus. I'm certainly older than the instructor, much less the other students. (laughs) I want to learn. I mean, I like to learn and see what that is. But I have a sense that Something else is going to be revealed during the course of the semester that's going to say to me, oh, that's why I did that. Yeah, that's interesting. And just before we do end, there was another example of that where you said you you became a chaplain with the local fire service, didn't you? And that was one of those you weren't quite. Tell me quickly about how did that come about? Well, it was during COVID. I was trying to dispose of some prescriptions and I went to the local sheriff's office which had a drop box and it was COVID no one was really around another car pulled up it was someone I knew who was a chaplain we're chit-chatting and I felt as if I was in a cartoon and spirit filled in the bubble and I said to this person how do you become a chaplain and he went I would love it if you became a chaplain (laughs) it was not on my radar screen at all It was from someplace else, but I followed through and I became a chaplain with the fire department. And one of my roles is to comfort people who have recently, I mean, like immediately lost someone, you know, my son just overdosed and they call in the chaplain. So it made no sense to me. I had no idea what the job was. I just followed suit. And and I'm also seeing ways that I'm to improve the program. Yes. Yes. And, you know, that gets back to just trusting and accepting and following and letting it unfold how it sometimes you don't know the reasoning for it until down the track. So it'll be interesting with the journalism. What? Um, yeah, well, I think there's a, a some kind of quote. It's like, take the leap and the net will appear. Yes, yes. Yeah. And so. Yeah. I, I've learned through my life at this point, it, I mean, even coming when moving to California, it made no sense. It was just like move. So it's like, okay. Wow. So I've been kind of doing that. And I would really invite your listeners to trust that message. Yes. I love it. Without trying to understand it, just kind of lean in. 
See just what lean happens. In and allow, allow. Yeah. Arlene, just quickly, where can people find you again? So dyingingrace.com is the website. The email is simply Arlene, A-R-L-E-N-E, at dyingingrace.com. Please, all questions, Reach whatever. Out. That would be lovely. That would love be to lovely. hear from you. I'm happy to be international. Find <laughs> a doula in your community too. Yes, yes. Thank you so much, Arlene, for that. I really appreciate your time and hugs and happiness to you. Yeah, thanks so much, Catherine. This is lovely. Look forward to seeing you again in class. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode. You can spread the love by sharing it with a friend so she can have a little bit of what we had today. And don't forget to rate and review so we can get it into as many hearts and ears as possible. You can keep the conversation going on my Happiness Hive socials. And if you'd like some more high vibe happiness in your life, come and join me in our community of inspired and motivated women at the Happiness Lounge. This is my online membership club and your central hub for everything you will need to be truly happy and bounce out of bed every day living and loving your best and most beautiful life. To find out more, pop over to the Happiness Hive website and click on the link working with Catherine. Until next time, big hugs and happiness.